Please read with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and the privilege it is to be able to gather with our church family and together with your people and to sing praises to you, to hear your word, to come before you in prayer, to fellowship with one another, to stir one another up. And Lord, as we dig into this passage and think about what constitutes a biblical gathering, what constitutes an unbiblical gathering, what sort of things shouldn't be present in our gatherings, Lord, I ask that you would give each of us just a a spirit of intentionality as we approach this text. Help us each to be thinking through how this applies to us and how this challenges us to change. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit's work in each of our hearts in prompting us to come to a clear understanding on this text. Lord, I ask that you'd help me and just uh, allow me to speak clearly and to rightly communicate what's in this passage. We again, Lord, just lift this time up to you and ask that you'd be glorified in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I wanted to start with a question not a rhetorical question, a discussion question for us. And it's the same one that was on your preparing for next week from last week. And that is, how had selfishness corrupted the joy and the fellowship of believers in Corinth? So from this passage, you could also zoom out of that to think about other things we've talked about in 1 Corinthians. But from this passage, how had selfishness corrupted the joy and fellowship of believers in Corinth? Go. What, was, what were the sort of things corrupting their joy and fellowship? 
you have to skim back through the text, go for it. Their pride that caused divisions. Flesh that out a little bit. Where are you seeing the, the pride aspect? And I agree. Big time. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Right. Yeah, from one of our first weeks going through, they're, they're already in this situation where they're kind of, they got this party spirit of, I'm with this guy, well, I'm with this guy. And yeah, great. So that's certainly coming out in this context also. Yep. What else? Again, the question is, how had selfishness corrupted the joy and fellowship of believers in Corinth? Was someone else saying something? Yeah. Sexual sin, absolutely. Yeah, selfishness in that area certainly was corrupting the joy and fellowship. Yep, what else? They were suing each other. They were suing each other. Yep. I mean, here we see even that there was drunkenness happening at the Lord's table. So, I mean, that's related to what's already been said, but certainly that would have been disrupting joyful fellowship. So, as we get into this passage... Communion is what we're talking about, the Lord's Supper. Communion, and it is a serious celebration. That's the title of this lesson. Serious celebration is meant to be taken seriously with serious care for others, serious examination of self, but then also serious reverence for God. And we're going to unpack all those as we go through. Basically, our outline for this morning is just to see that indeed this was a messed up assembly and the marks of a messed up assembly. And then the fourfold purpose of the Lord's Supper and then an urgent call for worthy partaking. So as we think about the Lord's Supper, I think it's something that many of us have seen, maybe grown up um, observing. But this is a wonderful opportunity as we go through this to really pause, unpack, think through what is it that we're doing when we partake of the Lord's Supper and make sure we're partaking of it rightly. So by all means, as typical, ask questions along the way. We'll pause and stop as there's questions. So, First section here, a messed up assembly, verses 17 through 20. The gathering had become an anti-edification gathering, an anti-edification gathering. Verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. It's the opposite of edification. They were tearing down one another instead of building one another up. Our times of gathering as believers is supposed to be when we stir one another up, encourage one another, edify one another, and that's the exact opposite thing from what was happening here. They were gathering for the worse. So we kind of already asked the question pertaining to them specifically, but I want to just zoom into our own context and think about corporate corruptors and fellowship disruptors. What sort of things disrupt our fellowship, corrupt the corporate gathering, what sort of things might cause an assembly of believers to, yeah, they're coming together, but they're coming together for the worse. So let's bring it up to 2024. I almost said 2021. Wow. Bring it up to today. 
and think through what sort of things, and I'm not necessarily saying like you need to tell the things you're bringing, That's, this isn't like a corporate confession time, but think through what sorts of things can be brought into, smuggled into our assembly as Christians that negatively impacts that assembly. What comes to mind? Yeah. Comparison, great. Can you flesh that out a little bit more? How does that impact it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's just ugly on either side of it, whether it's a young believer comparing themselves to someone that's kind of further all, along and, and kind of they just end up being self-focused as a result, or the flip side of that was like, oh, I, I got it all figured out. I did my quiet time this week, and they didn't. <laughs> well, that, yeah, absolutely disrupts fellowship. What else? What might cause our gathering to be for the worse? Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, preferring one another based on um, appearance, really. Verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So there's this, this division that's looking at someone differently based on apparently what they have. Yeah. What else? Failure to recognize sexual sin, yeah, and just sin in general, just kind of a casual approach to sin that says, oh, that's, that's fine. I'm sure that'll just kind of stay in its place, right? What else? Politics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're entering a season in which that has the potential to do just a number on the way that we gather and just thoroughly undo what uh, the Lord intends to do in our midst. Yeah. Anything else comes to mind? Yeah, what's in it for me, basically? I'm just like, I'm, I'm looking for how this can help me. Yeah, good. There's a long list of things that we could be dragging into our gatherings that negatively impact. And, and I don't want us to think just like Sunday morning, big gathering, the whole church together. That's certainly... A context, but this is also even true in like small group context. You and your friends are getting together, your your brothers and sisters in Christ. But what sort of things are you going to be bringing into that? Is it going to be a, a positive time of fellowship, or is it going to be something that's actually for the worse? So we want to be aiming for the better. This opening verse in this section reveals something, and I just want to think um, want to think kind of as an aside here. that we should really be thinking intentionally just about the way we gather as a whole. We should be aiming for our times of assembly, our corporate worship, our fellowship to be spiritually profitable both for ourselves and for others. We should gather intentionally. So, this was a gathering that had become an anti-edification gathering, and secondly, it had become a divisive gathering. It had become a divisive gathering, verses 18 and 19. When you come together, there's divisions among you. And then he says, but I believe it because there kind of has to be, which is kind of a strange way for Paul to address divisions, to say there has to be divisions. One thing just to note here, verse 18, when you come together as a church, I think this kind of addresses a mindset that we might 
fall into and we think about the first century church, we think like, oh, that was probably just like this, like a, a never-ending small group. Like they just kind of were always just kind of every night was a church gathering and they were just always together. And I think we kind of take like the first couple chapters of Acts and kind of just impose that on the whole first century church and, and realize that, I mean, as we've seen in First in Corinthians, these were, these were people that were, some of them slaves, some of them working in various contexts, some of them married to unbelievers. Like, it wasn't a every day I'm able to gather with the church. The church had defined times where they would come together. That's why this verse says, when you come together as the church. So Paul's addressing a, a distinct assembly of believers that everyone knows what he's talking about here. This is when you come together as the church. This wasn't just an amorphous small group that just kind of hang out all the time and grew in Christ. This was given to people that had normal jobs, normal lives. They had things that they had to do throughout the week. They were growing in Christ even in the midst of, from a first century perspective, full schedules. Surely they didn't have Google calendars or anything like that, but they, they were carving aside time to gather as the church. But Paul says that this time when they were gathering as the church, coming together as the church, and that precious time that they had when they were all together was being obliterated by this selfishness. So what did this fractioning and obliteration and selfishness reveal? It revealed authenticity on one side and falsehood on the other. This idea of um, divisions being revealed here in verses uh, 18 through 19, the section at the end of verse 19 is, so that those of you who are genuine may be recognized. And I was trying to think of a way to like illustrate this, and the first couple of illustrations were less than helpful, and then I just dug into the word and realized the word itself is an illustration. So when something's genuine here, the context is that, that it's refined by fire. So something that's like, you picture precious metal, uh, it's put into a furnace, and then the impurities separate from it as a result of that testing and that trial. That's the idea that Paul's referring to here, that this, this testing and this separation that was happening was revealing genuine, precious, true faith, and then falsehood and impurities and that which wasn't actually precious. So, since what is genuine was being revealed, which is a good thing, nevertheless, we have to keep in mind that the process by which that was re revealed and you think of the illustration, I mean, that's, a, that's an unpleasant experience for that raw material, that ore to go through. So the wickedness and the selfishness of some necessarily revealed the genuine value of the faith of others. So in the, in the same way that the, the disauthenticity, the fakeness of one was ugly to see in these gatherings, it was revealing what true Christian love looked like because it was a stark contrast between these two. So as their hypocrisy became more clear, true Christian love became more clear also. And I want to just talk a little bit here about unity, because unity is something that's just thrown around a ton, and that, that we hear that drum beat all the time, we need to be united, we be, need to be united. But I think here reveals that Paul says it is necessary, verse 19, for there must be Wait, must be? What do you mean, Paul? There must be factions and divisions? He says there must be. Nevertheless, Paul was a huge champion of unity. So how do, how do we reconcile these two things together? If you would, turn with me to Ephesians 4, because it's going to 
hit on a few things that I just want us to see. And when we break for table discussions, we'll be in this passage a little bit too. Starting at the beginning of Ephesians 4, I'll read the first three verses. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But then jump down a little bit to verse, uh, we'll pick up in verse 11. It's really verse 13 that we're going to get to. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So a few things to note about unity just from this passage alone. And the reason I picked this passage is the word unity, the idea of unity shows up all throughout Scripture. The idea of being one, Jesus prayed for his disciples that they would be one. But the actual word unity occurs here in these two verses in the New Testament. Again, the idea of unity all over the place. Unity as a noun here in verse 3 and 13. So first in verse 3, unity happens in the Holy Spirit. Unity happens in the Holy Spirit. That's your, your blank there, spirit. Second, unity is facilitated through the equipping ministry of gifted church leaders. Verses 11 through uh, the first part of verse 12 talks about, this is all a sentence connected here starting in 11, that these individuals that the Lord has given to the church exists to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So unity is facilitated through the equipping ministry of gifted church leaders. And then the second half of verse 12, for the building of the body of Christ, unity develops as the whole body of Christ is built up. Unity develops as the whole body of Christ is built up. And then in verse 13 is is the main point there, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. But then we also see, and the knowledge of the Son of God. So unity is connected to accurate knowledge of Christ. Unity is connected to accurate knowledge of Christ and to Christian maturity, to mature manhood, as the verse says, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. And then from verse 14, unity is directly related to doctrinal stability, depth, and discernment. So this this concept of not being tossed around by every wind of doctrine. That's directly connected to the idea of unity. So unity is directly related to doctrinal stability, depth, and discernment. So as we go back to 1 Corinthians 13, although painful, the division and the disunity was revealing unspiritual, immature, ignorant, and unstable, and even fake Christians in the midst of Corinth. So that was the second aspect of this gathering. The third is that the gathering had become a fake gathering. The gathering had become a fake gathering. Look at verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They think they're taking the Lord's Supper. They think they're celebrating what Christ had done, but really they're doing something different. What they're doing is fake. So it's as if he says, speaking of what's not genuine, in the end of verse 19, your communion is fake. 
And another aside here, because I just want to touch on the fact that you've probably heard a lot of different terms for communion, right? I mean, like, is it the Eucharist? Is it communion? Is it the Lord's Supper? Is it the Lord's table? Is it the breaking of bread? And the answer is yes. So there's a lot of different words that the New Testament uses for the Lord's Supper. Eucharist, the, the word comes from what we're reading here in verse uh, 24. It says, and when he had given thanks, that word thanks is uh, eucharisto, like to, to give thanks. So that's where the term Eucharist comes from. We don't typically use the term Eucharist in Protestant circles because that's the term that Roman Catholics use for what's going on. And we're going to talk about the difference between the Roman Catholic view of communion and our view of communion. So the word itself is a biblical word to use, but the idea, Eucharist, usually communicates something else. So we tend to use the term communion, Lord's table, Lord's supper, or the breaking of bread. And this is just a listing of what verses those words come from and where you can find them if you want to dig into them yourself. So verse 21, so first off, 21, 20, verse 20 says that they're not actually taking the Lord's Supper. Even though it might, they're in the form of the Lord's Supper, it's not the real deal. And then 21 starts to get into their selfish situation. Because in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one gets, one's hungry, one's drunk. So some were treating the Lord's Supper as if it was just a physical buffet. It was meant for nourishment. It was just, I'm going to get there early so I can get my fill this totally twisted the impact of what this meal was supposed to be about. They would, some would come there, eat up the food, they'd get drunk. Meanwhile, others would be there to come celebrate the Lord's table, and then there's nothing left. Like, this is, I think this is so hard for us to even imagine what this would be like. Like, you picture a Sunday morning where we're gathered for communion, and the, the deacons go up, they, they take the, the cover off the, the bread, and then, like, it's empty, and we use juice, non-alcoholic, but if we use some sort of alcoholic beverage, then you're picturing like a few people in the congregation that have just gotten there five minutes early, pigged out on the Lord's Supper, and then it comes time to like distribute the elements and there's no elements left. Like hard for us to wrap our minds around, but that's the sort of selfishness that was happening in Corinth. So the result of this, and Paul gets at this with rhetorical questions, basically, God's church was despised. He says, do you despise the church of God? And God's people were humiliated. You humiliate those who have nothing, which is the total opposite of what's intended to happen in the gathering of believers. The church of God is meant to be loved. We're supposed to be with one another in brotherly fellowship. And then God's people are meant to be encouraged and strengthened and edified, not humiliated. So that's the situation. That was where the church in Corinth was at. And I want to just spend a little bit of time at tables unpacking a couple of these questions here on your tables. First question is, Corinth's gatherings had become detrimental, divisive, and false. What are practical ways that we can ensure our gatherings, both large and small, are edifying, unifying, and genuine? How are each of these things promoted? And then two, what do we learn about biblical unity from that Ephesians 4 passage? How does that impact the way we understand disunity and division? What insight does it give us on how to promote unity and prevent division? So take maybe five, maybe ten minutes or so, just work through those questions together at tables, and then we'll come back together and maybe nominate a spokesperson from your table to share some of the things you guys talk about at tables. All right, let's roll on to discussing the fourfold purpose of the Lord's Supper. 
So we already read those verses, so I won't reread them right now. We'll touch to them as we go. And I just want to preface that this section, let the record show I am uh, deeply indebted to both Dr. Matt Waymeyer and Professor Smedley Yates. Both of these men have been greatly influential on my understanding of these things and, and even the way I articulate them. So if I ended up taking things from which I did take stuff from Dr. Waymeyer's syllabus on this for uh, his theology class. Tremendously helpful. Um, want to give him credit for that. So, First purpose for the Lord's Supper is spiritual fellowship. We actually saw this a couple weeks ago when we looked at chapter 10, where Paul was addressing participation with demons and contrasting that with participation with the Lord. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17 say... The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then in our verse today, chapter 11, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That is, received it from Christ, delivering it to you. This is a all Christians thing, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. So the spiritual fellowship idea, it is a perpetual sign or a perpetual reminder of our fellowship, participation with Christ and with one another. So this is spiritual fellowship with Christ and with one another. Paul received and relayed communion because it is a corporate sign for the whole church. This meal was instituted by Christ when he was on earth couple verses that we won't turn to all those for the accounts of the first Lord's Supper when Christ instituted it. So that's the first purpose of the Lord's Supper. The second is new covenant remembrance, verses 24 through 25. Uh, specifically, verse 25, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So this is a backward-looking reflection on what Christ's body and blood, that is atoning death, has done, past tense, has done in inaugurating the new covenant, which church age believers are beneficiaries of now. So it's a backward looking reflection of remembrance. This is a meal of remembrance. It serves as an ongoing memorial. This is where we diverge very, very sharply from the view called transubstantiation. Use that word in Scrabble. It'd be hard to do. It's more than seven letters. Transubstantiation, to change substances, the belief that the elements of communion literally become the body and blood of Christ. Transubstantiation is the view of the Roman Catholic Church that the bread and juice or wine literally, that is, physically become the actual body and blood of Jesus. When the prayer when the priest prays over the elements and says the hoc est corpus, which is Latin for this is the body, which is where we get the slang hocus pocus. So the hocus pocus of the priest turns the communion elements into the actual body and blood of Christ according to transubstantiation. A couple things to note among many others. Transubstantiation ignores the parallel statement in Luke 22:20, 20, where he says this cup is the new covenant which clearly means that the cup represents or signifies the new covenant. So if you take all the verses together, you have some saying that it's the cup, some saying it's the blood. So that's one point. But bigger than that, transubstantiation fails to recognize the clear biblical teaching on the finality 
and the completeness of Christ's sacrifice once and for all time. It's a once for all sacrifice, not an ongoing weekly Christ needs to be re-sacrificed for my sins last week. Far be it from the truth. No, it is a once and done final sacrifice that Christ paid for on the cross. So this little doctrine, transubstantiation, is one that most of you probably don't give thought to, but this is a really, really big deal because to misunderstand this is to have a very different view of the gospel, a very different view of how your sins are forgiven. Are you trusting in Christ's finish, finished work on the cross or do you need to go to a priest weekly to have your sins from that week forgiven and Christ be re-sacrificed for you again and again and again? This little doctrine is why people were burned alive at the stake in England during the English Reformation, literally for holding to the fact that, no, this is, this is not a re-sacrifice of Christ. Christ paid for our sins once for all on the cross. Believers died because of what we're talking about today. So it is a new covenant remembrance, a memorial meal. Third, it is a visual proclamation. Verse 26, it is a visual proclamation. So often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it is a material depiction of what Christ has already done and how to have a right relationship with God through faith in his atoning work on the cross. His atoning work on the cross. Another quote there from Matt Wehmeyer, you can read at your convenience. Fourth, it is the purpose of this communion meal is future hope. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. It is a forward-looking anticipation of Christ's return and what he will do at his return. A forward-looking anticipation of Christ's return and what he will do at his return. A couple questions, you can loop back to them at the end when we break for table prayer. What are the four purposes of the Lord's Supper, or which of the four purposes of the Lord's Supper have you not thought about much? So thinking about those four purposes, which one have you not really thought much about? How does it change the way you think about and approach communion in light of that purpose? And then how do each of the four purposes of communion relate to one another? So the last section, an urgent call for worthy partaking, an urgent call for worthy partaking, verses 27 through 34. There's a right way and a wrong way. Paul's primary point is that the attitude and conduct should fit the message and solemnity of what is proclaimed. What we do when we gather to take the Lord's table, to take the Lord's supper, that posture with which we gather in that assembly should fit with what's being illustrated by that memorial meal. So the manner matters. This is not about the worthiness of the person taking communion. That's really important to realize. It's not about the worthiness of the person. It's about the manner of partaking. Think about this. Categorically, who would be unworthy to partake of the Lord's table? Someone who, just period, should not take the Lord's table based on what the purposes of the Lord's table is. An unbeliever, yes, that is the blank, an unbeliever, categorically unworthy to take the Lord's table. That would be the person being unworthy. 
Because in light of the above purposes, that'd be someone who does not have fellowship with Christ and his people, someone who is not a beneficiary of the new covenant, someone who does not trust in the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and someone who is not eagerly anticipating Christ's return, a.k.a. an unbeliever. The Lord's table is for believers. And I just want to say, practically speaking, um, one, if you are here and you're not a Christian, I am very glad you are here. We're glad you're here every week, if that's the case. We hope you keep listening to God's word and hearing the gospel. But two, don't take communion. It's not, it's not for you. It's not designed for non-believers to be proclaiming something that they don't actually believe to be true and that they know to not be true of themselves. Second, for all of you, when you invite non-believing friends or family members to church, if it's the first Sunday of the month, have a conversation with them ahead of time and just say, hey, just so you know, at the end of the service, we're going to take communion, briefly explain what communion is, and just say, this is not something that you should take. This is designed for believers to be proclaiming what we believe Christ has done for us and remembering that. So just let that be an opportunity for the, the plate to pass by. Don't partake. So that's instruction for all of you to then relay to those that you're bringing, especially on first Sundays in the Sunday morning service and then third Sundays in the Sunday evening service. So the Christian's personal worthiness, as we get back to the idea of worthiness, our personal worthiness is secured by Christ. Our, our worthiness is secured by Christ. Per, personal worthiness is a pass-fail. Either you're in Christ or you're not. You've never had a week, think about it, you've never had a week where you've earned communion. You've never gone through a week and just like, I, I, I really earned it this week. If that's what we were communicating by taking communion, we have a really low view of our own sinfulness and our own unworthiness. So our unworthiness is secured by Christ, but nevertheless, there is a manner that is wrong. So the Lord's Supper isn't merit-based. It's not about the worth of the worshiper. It's about the atonement of Christ. So what does it mean to take in a worthy manner? So the context is that the Corinthian manner was one of selfishness. It was one of pride. They were esteeming others too lowly, selves too highly. They were totally missing the point of communion. The manner in which they took communion was wrong. They were taking it lightly and glibly, which we must not do. So what are the essential elements of partaking in a worthy manner? That's our last section here. Essential elements of partaking in a worthy manner. One, it's inward, self-examination. Verses 28 and 31, examine yourselves. Sorry, this is a reference to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, 6. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. So this language of test yourselves, examine yourselves, it shows up in 2 Corinthians also. A quote from Harold Marr, By self-examination, the believer guards against eating and drinking to his own judgment through not recognizing the importance of this supper that commemorates the death of Christ. So again, this language of testing and refining, it's the same sort of metallurgy language from before. Know what's going on in your heart. Know what's going on in your motivations. Are there sins that you haven't brought before the Lord? Are you, are you coming into the Lord's table with hypocrisy, with, with things that you're holding on to or, or things against others? Self-judgment prevents God's judgment is the way that this verse articulates those things in verse 28. Let, him, let a person examine himself and then on down in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So self-examination is serious business, but it is essential business for the Christian. It is essential business for the Christian. Second, worthy manner of participation includes upward reverence and recognition. So it's inward self-examination and then upward as we think about Christ. 
appropriately perceiving the uniqueness of communion, discerning the body. One must not approach the Lord's table casually, seeing this as a mid-church snack time, which is probably how most of us, if we grew up in the church, thought about communion at some point in our lives. Was, oh, mom and dad get to take a snack? Why don't I get to take a snack? That's not discerning the body properly. You don't understand what you're partaking of if you think it's snack time. So one must not approach the Lord's table casually, seeing this as a mid-church snack time. Failing to discern and differentiate this from any other meal is a serious error. A serious error. Quote from Charles Hodge, you can read. So what if one fails to discern? Paul says this has led to illness and death for some. Wow. Illness and death for not partaking in a worthy manner. So this idea of judgment and preservative discipline, this is not something we typically talk about. It's not a comfortable thing to even think about. But in loving discipline, here it says that some had even died so that they may not be condemned along with the world. Look at verse 32. But when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And verse 30 is what's saying that it was, they've become weak, they've become ill, and some have died. So in loving discipline, God had cut short the life of believers at Corinth to prevent their falling into condemnation with the world. He, you could say metaphorically, shortened their journey, knowing that if he did not bring them to harbor immediately, they would have shipwrecked their faith. 1 Timothy 1.19. Again, this is God's preservative and loving discipline. It's a, a rare case in which this would happen, but it it highlights the seriousness and the severity of just being totally nonchalant with what God says to take very seriously. So there needs to be upward reverence and recognition, and lastly, there needs to be outward regard for others. 31 through 32. Oh, sorry, uh, 33 through 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So one, it's outward preparation entails patience, waiting for others, caring for others. But then it also just means practical preparation. In this case, that meant eat at home. If you're coming to communion starving and you're going to eat all the food, eat first. So specific, this is a specific instruction from a broad principle. So the, the eat at home idea is a broad principle that says I should come practically prepared to take communion. The instructions for them to eat ahead of time highlight how the Lord's Supper was to be something people prepared for. Examination was the spiritual preparation. Physical preparation meant that people needed to eat so they did not approach this like any other meal. Also, this highlights just a big difference between when the Lord instituted communion, he did it around a dinner table. They were eating. Versus here, which says, eat ahead of time and then come to when the church gathers for the Lord's table. I'll close some prayer and then uh, you guys can break for uh, table prayer and then just discussion on that last uh, question. Uh, last question is a couple questions ahead. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for your word and this passage especially which just sheds so much light on something that um, we, we see regularly, uh, we partake of regularly, but your word um, gives us specific instructions for why and how not to, how to gather for this 
um, communion meal especially. So help us, Lord, to think through these things rightly and to apply these things to our lives. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.